Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Sophia Ramos. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Associate Professor Elizabeth Havis. In their conversation, Professor Havis discusses her current research project on oceanic territory, as well as her earlier work on the global tuna industry. If you don't mind, could you tell me a little bit about what your your research is in general and maybe how you became interested in this, this path? Sure. Um, so I guess in general, my research, I think what animates my interests is concerns about governance really broadly conceived. So what what governance is, not just from a big G government perspective, but mm-hmm. um, kind of how relationships between people, institutions, places, and also inanimate objects kind of shape the world that we live in. So, and I'm interested in that in terms of economic governance and also environmental and resource governance and especially the intersections between those two things. And I guess I arrived at that place through a very circuitous route, like most people. I guess Mm -hmm. some people, I always am telling my students, some people have it all planned out, but usually... You know, a lot of about, a lot of the interviews I do, most people are saying, I didn't ever think I would be insert subject area yeah. professor when I grew totally. up. Yeah. Totally. I didn't ever think that people would refer to me affectionately as the tuna lady, for example. <laughs> <laughs> but here I am, um, having studied tuna for a really long time. Okay. But I st- my pathway was was really, I don't know if it was if it was usual or unusual, but I started studying the natural sciences mm-hmm. as an undergrad, and I had a great opportunity to do field research with some leading um, fisheries ecologists at the University of Wisconsin, where I did my undergrad. So it was a really unique opportunity as an undergrad. I was at this remote field station and out in this this place that had 70 different lakes, and I was oh, doing wow. these whole lake experiments, and um, it was really fantastic. But what I learned was that I didn't want to do that kind of work yeah, <laughs> forever. Yeah. I was really right. interested in the interested in the in getting that field experience. But over time I started becoming more and more interested in kind of how nature and humans intersected. So mm-hmm. as an undergrad then I added in an environmental sci- sciences, environmental studies major, and then when I was looking for graduate school I went to an interdisciplinary program. And it was um, in a natural science, a college of natural resources, but it, I was in this social science division. So it was oh, okay. this kind of strange situation. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your current project that you're working on as a fellow right now? Sure. Um, so my current project is a book project about territory in the oceans. And the question basically is, is there territory in the oceans? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm, I'm interested in this because I've been working on oceans governance questions for a long time and also on, um, as I said, I was interested in, in economic governance and environmental governance, and I'm interested in the intersection of that in the oceans. So, you know, what kinds of industries and sectors play out in the oceans, fishing, shipping, seabed mining, um, and also, of course, livelihood dynamics, mm-hmm. conservation dynamics. But of course, the oceans are, are have this strange kind of materialities and defy right. governance patterns. Um, so the book is really aiming to to ask this question of what is territory in the oceans and what might it be? To me, when I was listening to your work and what you're doing, it, it kind of makes me pull out and just think of how ridiculous 
territory is in general yeah. when you really think about it. But yeah. because then you get into other things where it's not like land, which is finite, and you right. can mark it off. But if it's yeah. water, yeah, <laughs> that water goes everywhere. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although territory as a kind of concept and practice yeah. is so important for modern system of states, mm-hmm. for modern political stability and instability, conflicts over territory. So it works in particular ways on land. Those are always in the making and contested. Yeah. But then in the oceans, when you have different countries or um, or different interest groups trying to make claims or to even just say, we need to, to manage the oceans in a certain way, it creates a whole different set of dynamics between the players that are involved and also just the challenge of governing and managing these unruly natures in the oceans. When you're doing your research on this particular topic, can you tell me about a moment that was really inspiring or exciting? Yeah, I definitely had a big aha moment that I think it was several years ago, but I think Mm -hmm. it was ultimately leading to this kind of project. (laughs) Um, But a big part of claiming or governing is about being able to see or know the thing that you would want to claim, right? Right, So, of course, like mapping has always been a big part of this, the story of territory. Um, But when uh, when I was in graduate school, as I mentioned, I've been working on the tuna industry for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I was going to a, a conference that was marine biologists. And they were showing this data that I had never seen before. And this was a lab that was operating out of that still operates out of Stanford University. Um, Barb, Barb Block is the PI for this this group. And in the early 2000s, she innovated this technology to insert satellite tags into Atlantic bluefin tuna. Oh wow! Um, in order to be able to track where they go in the oceans. Yeah. And this was completely novel and really important because if you know anything about fish, you know that Atlantic bluefin is one of the most valuable fish on planet Earth. An individual fish will sell for upwards of $100,000 at first sale in in, an auction at at market. Um, because it's very tasty. Okay. Um, and it's some of the highest quality sushi grade fish. Okay, There's a kind it. of long story how yeah, that yeah, yeah. emerged, All which right. maybe we don't have time for it to yeah. divert into. It used to be cat food, it was kind of a bycatch product. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and then trading companies got yeah. involved and kind of remarketed it and integrated it into the Japanese um, seafood market. Okay. And it's become extremely valuable. And of course, there are conservation concerns, all sorts of intersections. And um, everybody has known these are huge fish. They can be, you know, adult, mature fish can be up to 1,200 pounds. There can be these massive fish. And they're highly migratory species. Mm -hmm. So everybody knew that they were swimming all around the oceans. um, But this new technology and this new set of kind of scientific features showed actually what the fish were doing yeah, and where they were yeah. going. And so I was in uh, at this conference and one of Barb's students was presenting some of their work and he started putting these tracks of tuna up on the, you know, on a PowerPoint slide. Yeah, yeah. And I looked around and everyone in the room was kind of shaking their head like, oh yeah, I get it. Wow, look what that fish is doing. Yeah. And in this presentation, um, they were also starting to couple these movement data with life history patterns. So for example, that mm, that's okay. the fish that, are, that spawn in the Gulf of Mexico, they could start to show where they were spawning and at what time. Yeah. And so in this presentation, they were demonstrating that, okay, now we know where this fish is going and look I can show you in this really legible way on the map Mm -hmm. that we should have 
have a, a fishing closure during a certain season in a certain location in the Gulf of Mexico to protect them during while they're spawning. Got it. And I just watched everyone in the room, their eyes just lit up and every mm-hmm. it was so instantly clear mm-hmm. what should be done. Um, and so I kept that in mind for a long time. And then um, eventually now I'm actually working with one of the one of Barb's former students on a project uh, where we're looking at, well, now that we know these animals, yeah, what's happening with policy? Are we able to manage them? Who's the we even right, right, right. that's involved in management? Um, and of course, we started the project saying, okay, well, what's the impact of these visualizations? And you know, the scientists are arguing that this information will make things so clear and legible and easy and actionable for for management. Mm-hmm. But of course, we're finding that it's far more complex than that. And <laughs> the data are making management um, complex and really unexpected in new ways. Um, so that was a kind of aha moment where I started to think like, oh, when I saw that line, I was probably one of the few social scientists in the room. Yeah. And I saw the, those lines in the sea and I started to think, oh, Who's going to claim that fish? Yeah, yeah. Whose is it? Who owns it? Right. Who's responsible for Can its you... management? <laughs> and how does seeing this fish change those claims and who's who's able to make those claims? Mm-hmm. So that was kind of aha moment that, you know, and then a bunch of other pieces start to come together for me to think like, oh, you know, people are really starting to fight about the oceans and there's a lot at stake mm-hmm. and there's a lot that's um, that's changing, a lot of livelihoods, a lot of industries that are interested. And there's this principle and idea of common heritage of humankind and future generations and the oceans are important for climate stability. So this has been a really exciting chance to step back from specific sectors and to think about the governance of the oceans broadly. Yeah. We ask this of everyone. What's a book that changed your life? <gasps> oh, my gosh. Would it be cheesy to say Steinbeck's Cannery no. Row? No. Talk about that. <laughs> Why would that be cheesy? <laughs> I don't know, because it's like fish. I work oh, at fisheries. No, that's fine. And, no. Um, I don't know. I guess, oh, well, yeah, I did. I just have loved reading Steinbeck, just the power of the storytelling and being able to take the complexity of kind of intersecting interests and put them together to tell much broader stories. I love assigning portions of Grapes of Wrath to my students Mm -hmm. in my economic geography class to say, you know, this is about capitalism. This is a story about capitalism. So certainly that work, in some ways, that just kind of captured my imagination about the idea of frontiers and Mm -hmm. what it what it means to kind of move into frontiers. And then I moved to California and yeah. I would go to the Salinas Valley and uh-huh. go to Monterey. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I just loved thinking about that history. When did you first read, what was the name of the book? Again? Oh, um, Cannery, Cannery Row. Yeah, when, when did you first read that? <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. I don't know. Maybe high school, maybe college. Oh, okay. I don't know. Um, but then all of a sudden I realized, like, oh, wait, why are all these books written that we have to read written by men? Yeah. And I think I should read more stories animated by women. And so I've been really inspired by reading female authors lately. Like who? Um, well, I, like everybody else, became obsessed with Elena Ferrante's um, series of Neapolitan novels. Have you read those? Films? No, I haven't. Um, they're really amazing. I, it's actually, I think, you know, has similarities to Steinbeck in terms of just like super complex stories and narratives and just incredible character development uh-huh. that are really about relationships between people, um, but situated in the kind of political and economic dimensions of their their times. You should read those books. 
recently I've, I feel pretty sensitive about what I'm reading. I'm yeah. very selective because I don't have that much time. Right, yeah. But at the same time, you know, reading novels has been so, it, it really refreshes me and mm -hmm. it's so wonderful to use my brain in a different way and to be able to kind of think, think through storytelling. So novels are great, but you know, also nonfiction is nice. And yeah, yeah. Are there particular venues like kind of outside your your kind of discipline area in terms of nonfiction that you like that to That I really pursue? dig into? Yeah. Well, so I recently read Susan Orlean's book, um, The Library Book. Have you heard about this no, book? No, I haven't. It's a, it's a really wonderful book. And the premise of the book, it starts with the story of a, of a fire in mm -hmm. the Los Angeles Central Library okay. in the mid-1980s, I think 1986. And um, the the library in, in downtown LA like burnt, oh, just burned. Yeah. Wow. Um, but it's just this great story about she just does a magical job of using that as an entryway to think about information science, access to information, mm -hmm. um, its role, the role of libraries in society and communities, and to do historical work and contemporary work on how library science is changing um, and what communities need and are asking of their libraries. Um, and also, it's about the kind of history of California. So she yeah, weaves yeah. in. I, f I realize this interview is sounding very California heavy, no, but she okay. <laughs> she weaves in the the histories of the people who founded the libraries, who its directors yeah. were over time. Okay. Um, and also just questions about you know how the significance of access to information um, yep, and control right. of access to information. Mm -hmm. So and it's also just like a delightful page turner read. It was like so wonderfully refreshing and interesting, and also. If I had it all to do again, I certainly would do a degree in information science. Thank you very much. I enjoyed the conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.